For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a closer look at Arizona's unpredictable election season. Find out how a local artist's portrayals of fear and anxiety are connecting with viewers of all ages. Meet Sammy Madden, a young man facing life without advantages that many of us take for granted, arms and legs. And the staff at the Tucson Museum of Art bid a fond farewell to employee John McNulty after more than 40 years. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Our unique presidential campaign season has already provided many interesting challenges for political analysts and pollsters, and new surprises are occurring on a daily basis. Things will be heating up even more next week as voters head to the polls on Tuesday, August 30th, to make their choices in the Arizona primary. Lorraine Rivera will be covering the situation in depth on the next edition of Arizona Week, and she joins me now with a preview of what she's learned. Tell me, is the interest in the national campaign going to spur larger numbers of voters than usual to get involved? You know, that depends who you ask. Republicans seem to think Arizona is a Republican stronghold and will continue to be. Democrats say this is ours for the taking because people are not happy with Donald Trump. Uh, Republicans, though, have said uh, Hillary Clinton could do very well in Arizona. It's unclear if she'll change the color of the state, but she may very well gain some new support in Arizona. You talked with some of the top political strategists in the state, and what did they have to say about what we may be looking at for November? The Republicans seem to think that Donald Trump will, in fact, lose Arizona and lose the presidential race. Uh, They also think that he's doing a great job for the Democrats in drumming up support. They're also saying, however, all three of them who will be featured on the program this week, that Hillary Clinton is not running the best campaign, but it's really her competitor who's making her appear strong. They say in any other traditional race, this would not be happening. But again, this is untraditional. Other parties are saying this is our time to shine. You know, last week we heard from the Green and Libertarian parties who are saying we're picking up momentum based on the Republican and Democratic nominees. And did the analysts you spoke with agree that third-party candidates are going to play a a bigger-than-normal role? They will certainly play a part. They won't change party politics per se, but they may gain some new fans, some new voters who may come out and say, maybe I'm going to sit this one out or maybe I'm going to pick a candidate that I wouldn't normally um, select this time around. Uh, One of the biggest races in the state will involve the future of longtime incumbent Senator John McCain. What have you heard about that? John McCain has been in the Senate for nearly 30 years. Kelly Ward, his competitor in the primary race, says she wants to hand him his retirement this time around. The polls don't necessarily reflect that. I got to sit down with uh, Dr. Ward recently, and she's confident. She's pushing full steam ahead until the very end, and it will be interesting. Regardless, um, that person will face a, a fierce competition come November against Democrat Ann Kirkpatrick. Is McCain as engaged in this year's election as he has been in his previous races? John McCain came to Arizona Public Media a few weeks ago, and he said this is the political fight of his life, and he's leaving it up to the will of the voters, but he says he's just as determined as he ever was to represent Arizona. Candidate Donald Trump has received strong support from former Governor Jan Brewer, but from Jeff Flake, not so much. It's certainly mixed. You, um, Jeff Flake and John McCain very hesitant on what they will say about Donald Trump given certain time frames. It will be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, Governor Brewer, former Governor Brewer, is 
behind Donald Trump. As a matter of fact, when he campaigned in Arizona, she was right next to him. We also have State Treasurer Jeff DeWitt, who's working in the finance role of Donald Trump's campaign. So Arizona is certainly um, a name for Donald Trump to be watched just because he's got the quote unquote star power behind him. Tell us something that you learned from interviewing pollster Mike Noble this week. Mike Noble works for OH Predictive Insights. He does a lot of polling in Arizona, and he says the data that um, they collect, they're able to really judge what voter behavior tells them about the past, but more importantly, what it could indicate for the near future. But he makes those phone calls, he collects that information, and then he runs it through his systems, and he comes up with what we often hear about in the media. So this week on Arizona Week, we'll be talking with those political strategists and the pollster. That's Arizona Week Friday night at 8.30 on PBS 6, and again Sunday morning at 11. And all of AZPM's political coverage is gathered together online for you. Just search your vote at azpm.org. Thanks for your time, Lorraine. My pleasure. What do you keep under your bed? Shoeboxes? Exercise equipment? Maybe a monster or two? Artist and art instructor Curtis Kiwak delved deep into his psyche for inspiration for a new collection of paintings and drawings called Monsters Under the Bed. It's currently on display in the Tucson Jewish Community Center's Fine Art Gallery. Kiwak ended up giving life to a whole menagerie of creatures that playfully represent humans' innermost insecurities. The images aren't meant to be scary or intimidating, just honest. It's interesting to find out what some of the JCC's youngest visitors see when they look at the gallery walls. My name is Oliver and I'm seven. So tell me what you see when you look at this painting. What would you say? Because the people on the radio, they can't see it, right? So you got to tell them what it's like. It looks like a kitty with flabby legs <laughs> in the sky flying. Do you think he looks friendly or happy or sad? What words would you use to describe how he looks? He's happy. My name is Lynn Davis. I'm Director of Arts and Culture here at the Tucson J. Tell us how Curtis's exhibition fits into the J. It fits in in so many ways, I think. Um, Kurt's work is so playful and vibrant and diverse and I think represents um, many things that we try to communicate here. Someone came up to me and said, they were very, very curious and a little concerned and said, the guy hanging the show, is that his work? And I said, why yes, why? And they said, well, I just can't tell. Is it an adult's work? Is it children's work? And I think that is just one of the best compliments an artist can get because it means that Kurt has maintained and captured um, this playfulness and this whimsy and his imagination comes through so vibrantly in his work. Kurt's work seems to deal with some anxieties, bad dreams, things that we all kind of carry around. Do you think it's um, important or relevant that that is a theme of this show right now? Was that part of perhaps why it ended up on these walls? Like any artwork, it's, it's so much of it is about what the viewer brings to it. For the crowd that we have here, especially now during summer camp with so many children in the building, it's validating. Um, I think it shows that fears and concerns, you know, have a commonality to them, that many people share them. You know, you are part of a larger community, you are part of a larger society. There are people who share your hopes and fears, and I, I think that's a really great message that comes out of this. Um, my name's Curtis Kiwak, and I am a teacher at, for TUSD in a preschool program that's been running for 45 years. 
I grew up in Chicago and I moved here in the late 70s to go to school. How do you think that your background uh, studying science influences your art? Um, one is dealing with detail. I like looking at detail and that element comes up in a lot of my art. Even though it's kind of fantastic, surrealistic, kind of childlike, there's quite a lot of detail in it. I've always incorporated either monsters or you know, like animals or childlike animals, how maybe how a child might perceive them. I mean, here is this innocent-looking kind of puppy-ish animal. Yes, in another uh, setting, he might look very optimistic yes, and hopeful. Yes, right. And, and he's just kind of staring at you, and it's just sort of like you never know what's going to happen. I mean, we, you know, we're, the world's fraught with so many different kinds of problems we have to face daily. So the title is, Little Did He Know That He Would Be the Proverbial Deer in the Headlights. You know, I don't think about the title ahead of time. I think about it afterwards. Usually if I'm drawing through, I'm thinking, oh, this would be, this is interesting, what's happening here, and this is interesting. And so I'm just sort of making it up as I go along. When I very first walked into the gallery and saw your work, I thought, well, this must be very encouraging and very validating for children to see because they can look at it and they can say, hey, I can make artwork that expresses my feelings without having to worry so much about technique. But then I discovered there's a lot of technique here, and I began to realize after talking to you that I think the situation is actually the opposite, that it's not you telling kids, hey, be imaginative and loosening up. It's you listening to kids who are telling you that. Oh, well, I agree with that. When there are kids who are really in tune to what they're doing on the paper, they keep learning new things that they can do, you know, and they keep repeating over and over and over again. And if they're allowed to do that without criticism, their drawings change, their, their artwork changes. You know, what I've learned is that from their, on how they do things, to kind of like have that attachment with the paper where I'm not worried about what people are saying, that I don't have to worry about uh, making it l look like typical art. You know, that's, you know, that's basically what I've learned over the years. Hi, my name's Jen and um, I'm here at the JCC today picking up my son Isaac from summer camp. When you came in and you saw this gallery work, what was your first impression? You know, I, uh, I really thought it was all very beautiful. Um, really whimsical. I really like the series they have on the monsters. They look like they're from a children's book. I think it's a really great fit for the JCC given the amount of youth here. Are these the kind of illustrations that you might see your son sort of drawing or you see in his books? Um, you know, I guess I see them more in his books. Um, my son is actually more into drawing dragons these days. So um, I, there aren't any dragons here, but there are uh, lots of other types of uh, monsters that some look kind of like chickens. One looks sort of like the scream. Hi, Hi Isaac. Hi, Isaac. Hey, Isaac. Which one do you like? Which monster? That one? Yeah. It's uh, orange, and it, do you think he has holes in his head? Orange yellow. Orange and yellow, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, he has big teeth, huh? Big teeth. <laughs> How old are you, Isaac? Well, I think you've got a big career in radio ahead of you, Isaac. Monsters Under the Bed, Works on Paper by Curtis Kiwak, will be on display at the Tucson Jewish Community Center through September 6th. There will be an artist's reception this Sunday, August 28th, from 2 to 4 p.m. There is a link for information and pictures of Curtis's paintings on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org.
From the beginning, it was clear that a boy named Samir from India was not destined for an ordinary life. Born without arms or legs, he was adopted by a family from Tucson when he was five and soon learned for himself to make the most of his differences and opportunities. Now, Sammy Madden is a religious studies and history major at the University of Arizona and keeps up with his busy schedule with help from prosthetic legs and a service dog named Ashka. He's also reaching out to young people to share his experience and message. Mitchell Riley brings us the story. The day that you present, you're turning in a bibliography, right? Well, the topic, hell, was actually given to us by a professor. We discovered that there are many depictions of it, for instance, in Dante, Dante's writings, and also discussed in the New Testament in different places. Containing the letter to Philip, the Apocalypse of James, and a fragment of I love studying about different religions and the different cultures that go along with those, with those religions. It was also not found very far from where... Everything is connected. You know, with history, you have the dates and everything, and then with religion, there's a story behind everything. My name is Samira Anthony Madden. I am 21 years old. I am a history and religious studies student at the University of Arizona. My personal story starts back when I was born in Hyderabad, India. Shortly thereafter, I was given up for adoption and I went to an orphanage and spent my first five years there. I never met them, so I don't know the reason why they really gave me up for adoption, but I was never angry that my parents gave me up. I've been very lucky that they did that and I been honored that they did that because they gave me a second chance in life. At the age of five I was adopted and came to the U.S., came to Tucson and grew up here. My parents are Bill and Beth Madden. I don't know where I would be without them. I love my parents very much. They created this album. This is a goodbye gift. And it says to dearest Sammy with love from all at Baby Center. He kept the keys at the orphanage and knew how to turn off the, the main circuit breaker <laughs> by climbing up on a chair and up onto a counter and all the rest of this sort of stuff. That really comes from the fact that he was very much loved long before we ever met him. When you have that kind of love, then you can turn around and love people in return and be comfortable with it. And, and since the orphanage was a place where people came all the time and he would meet them, then he became comfortable dealing with all different kinds of people from different places. I am one of eight kids. I'm the youngest. My family definitely extends outside my being one of eight kids. Uh, my parents have what they like to call borrowed kids. And, they are very much an extended part of our family, and we tend to have people come over on Friday nights. People will see me as being different automatically because I'm missing my arms and I'm missing my legs. In reality, it's each of us is different. We are different in each aspect, you know, whether it's physical or if it's uh, emotional or psychological, we're all different in one way or another. And so for someone to pick on someone else who has a difference is really counterintuitive. 
when I go and talk to these kids, it's to tell them, you know, we are different and we have to accept each other in that difference. I've had the pleasure of knowing Sammy now for close to 10 years, and he's done a lot in his short life. So middle school's hard. Yep. It is, isn't it? It's a little hard. He survived it. You and I survive. survived her, oh, which is right even way. more important. <laughs> All right, with that, I'm going to let my bud here talk. So how much time do we have just so I get an idea? Well, that's four minutes slow, first of all. Hi. Hi. How's everyone? Good. Are we awake? Yeah. Well, when you first walked in and saw me, what did you guys think? What did you see initially? Yes. A challenged young man. What? A challenged young man. Challenged young man. That's new. I had teachers in high school say, this has to be hand-drawn. Hand it's like, sure, which hand, you know? <laughs> it's like, which hand would you like me to draw with? So, you know, I've, I've had that. When I don't have the dog with me, people see me, and a lot of times, they will run in the opposite direction. Little kids will run in the opposite direction, and adults, you know, will walk in the other way to avoid me, and it's because I'm missing arms and legs, and they're not sure how to approach me. And When I give my presentations to students, I talk about my life. I had surgeries. My uh, struggles, my ups and downs uh, in life. In third grade, I was dealing with something called bone overgrowth surgery. What I want students to take away from my presentation is the universal acceptance of each other. In my junior year in high school, there was a student who happened to have a limb difference, uh, who was missing some fingers on both of his hands, and they were picking on him. And he was being bullied at the school. I found out about it, and I talked to the freshman class. I went in and I said, hey, you know, yes, he's missing some fingers, but whoop-de-doo. He can do anything he wants. I can do anything I want, but we also have to accept those differences. And once we do, then the barriers can come down, and we can accept each other. And after that, things changed with him and in that freshman class. The most important thing that you have to remember is you have to believe in yourself. If you start with believing in yourself, others will follow. And remember that even through the hard times in your life and the good times, as long as you do everything to the best of your ability, you know who you are and you're proud of it, then nothing can stop you. We have to accept each other, and when we do, then the person who's being picked on because they're different is able to focus on their academics. They're able to focus on getting to know other people. When they realize that they have everything that they need, then their school gets better, and they start to make friendships. <laughs> you have to be able to see beyond the physical stuff. You just try, and if, if you can't do it, just keep on trying, that's all. I've ridden a horse, I swim, I've flown an airplane, I've drive my own car, so there's nothing I can't do. As long as I say I can do it, I can. My service dog is Ashka, uh, she's a six-year-old golden retriever. It's really nice because, you know, I have someone out there who will swim with me and it, it's a great bond. And swimming, I can move more freely. We have to take those cards that we are dealt 
and put them towards good and change people. And so you can't change the card you're dealt. What you can do is you can make a difference. That was Mitchell Riley's adaptation of a television story he produced for Arizona Illustrated. You can see it on our website, azpm.org. After more than four decades, a familiar face at the Tucson Museum of Art is moving on. Potter and ceramic artist John McNulty served as a direct link to the museum's past, and he founded the Romero House Potter School on the TMA campus. Next, we'll hear the voices of McNulty's friends and family as they gather at the museum to wish the best to John and Jeff, his partner of more than three decades, as they enter the next stage of their life together. What's going on? Yeah. People are being really nice to me. You say that like you're surprised. Uh, sometimes I am, because I'm usually crabby. <laughs> you didn't just necessarily want to have a nice little cocktail party for John McNulty, because that doesn't happen. My only question is, do we get the kind of happy Johnny with a smile on his face? Or do we get the Johnny where he's basically looking at all of the children in the lobby? So... I actually predated this building. It opened in 76, and I was hanging out in 73. So 10 directors later, and Tucson, you know, I mean, it was 200,000 people when I moved here, and now it's a million. Even, even when he, we walk in the doors here, the staff, and he says, what do you want, and get out, and go away, and don't ever talk to me again. He may put on this, like, super grouchy facade, but he's amazing. He will never say no. He is always there for anyone who needs him, in a heartbeat. So that's the Johnny we know and love. Well, this is actually a celebration. It's a roast and toast for John McNulty, who's been a long-standing fixture at the museum, over 43 years of service. Uh, started out at the museum way before it was even a museum. It was just an art center. It was over on Franklin Street. Uh, and was, has been many positions here, including a janitor, uh, an educator, and has been most widely known and uh, is a community celebrity as the museum store uh, manager and operator. He is such a consummate artist and friend and bitchy man that we all love so much. <laughs> he was sitting on a gorgeous gold and red throne with a crown on. You know, he really is very majestic when he, when he dresses up. They rented a throne, a gilded throne from Phoenix, which was a shock, a boa, a crown, a wand, and a big cup that says, finally retired. My sister sent me a text and she said, um, let me know how John's memorial goes. And I said, no, he's, he's not dead yet. But, but I'll save these pictures for when he is. He used to come to my parties and that's what he looked like 43 years ago. Yeah, how old is? Yeah, and, 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 then, he, and then he met Jeff. Hi, honey. John and I have been partners for 39 years. He was already here when I met him. He's ready to retire. He's done a great job here, but it's time. John and I own a bed and breakfast in Silver City, New Mexico, called the Bear Mountain Lodge. And so we'll spend more time up there running that. And then John's going to make a lot more pottery. I'm Doug Nielsen. I just want to tell a quick story when I met John. At one of the last biennials, you know, on the last day when the artists sell their work, 
I was enchanted by a very surreal rabbit head sculpture. And on the way out, I heard John say, Doug got the ugliest thing at the biannual. <laughs> when I saw him the first time, I thought, I intend to like you. You know, there's no, no negotiation about this. <laughs> Remember when I called it a gift shop and you yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. It's not a gift it's shop. It's not a gift shop. It's a museum store. Nobody thinks they're good enough to get John's love, you know. <laughs> you have to go through a lot. There might be a feather boa involved and a good dance number, so that's all important. I met John when I was living across the street in the Old Town Artisans uh, building, and John was working down in the basement with the gift shop when it was in the basement of the museum. I would make a big pot of coffee, put on my caftan, and bring the coffee over. We'd go down in the basement and all sit around and have coffee. It was very informative. I think there was one guard, and he was a painter, you know, so it was just wonderfully informal and a, fr and a family. You know, you just kind of, you turn around and it's 40 years later. I don't know, it's like weird. It's really weird when you think about it. I don't know, my fa whole family, there were seven of us, all of us have stayed in our jobs for over 30 years. I think it was just our parents and how we were brought up to stick with it. And if you love it, I mean, I've loved every minute of working here at the museum because it's always been a challenge. There's always something going on. It's always something new. There was one period where I thought I'd get another job and it was in another museum. But I, I, when it came down to it, I thought, no, I, I really like what I do. I love what I do, you know, and I had a platform. You know, I could be myself. I guess that's what it was all about. I could be myself. I'm gonna, I didn't come up because I'm afraid I'll cry. He doesn't want me to, and I'm gonna see the curmudgeon face that I've never seen. But John is a dear heart. There is such a loving kindness in him. You are a very good person. And I love you dearly. Johnny, you're a legend. You're, you are super in your own mind. And you always will be around this corner in this little bitty city. Johnny, thank you for everything you've done for us. I can't imagine the museum without you, though. Thank you. But I, it has to be. It has to be. I gotta do something else. <laughs> the voices we heard included TMA Chief Executive Officer Jeremy Mikolazak, John's husband, Jeff Brown, Paula Netta Taylor, Crane Day, and Doug Nielsen. The story was produced by Andrew Brown. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios, the music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. <laughs>